right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a special holiday medley edition of the No Laying Up podcast. We're going to do this uh, annual recap that we do in two parts. The first half, part one that you're listening to today. Episodes from the first half of the year up through the end of June. Been an incredible year. We had a lot of fun this year on the podcast. This thing is an absolute thrill to make, and we got to give a special shout-out to our friends at Callaway who have supported this show for five years running now, back when almost no one was listening to this show. They were still supporting this show, so we owe so much of the success of this podcast to them and their continued support of us, and proud to announce that uh, that support will continue into 2022 as well. They've got a great new line of stuff ready to come out. We're going to go out to Vegas in January, test some of it out, hang out with some of their players. They've had an absolutely enormous year on tour with the conversion of John Rahm into Callaway, him winning the U.S. Open, Phil Mickelson winning the PGA, Xander winning the gold medal at the Olympics. That's truly don't have enough time uh, in this in this shout-out to list out all the great successes they've had in the past year. All we can ask, if you're considering putting new equipment into your bag in the next year, at least give, it, give Callaway Golf a consideration. You can go to callawaygolf.com. Get all kinds of information on the golf balls, the wedges, the putters, the drivers, the fairway woods, the irons. They have truly have an offering for everyone. They have multiple offerings that you could probably make work in your bag. As I mentioned, this podcast has been a thrill to make. We work really hard to not make this show very clickbaity. We make the content you know, for the people that will tune in every week. It makes you want to tune in every week. It would look a lot different if we were trying to reach the largest amount of people possible, but you can help us reach a few more people. There's a couple ways you can do that that are very easy. Go into iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a five-star review. Drop some comments in there. Some people get in there and get mad at us for the just the most minute uh, details of the year, and they give us a one-star review. Can you help us offset that a little bit with some five-star reviews? It really helps when people click on the page and see a 4.8, 4.9 rating out of five uh, to know that this is a show worth listening to, if you believe that. Only do that if you do believe it. Second thing is, this is a great episode, we always believe, to share with somebody who may not listen to the show. It gives you a good taste of what you can expect in the interview portions of the podcast uh, and kind of highlight some of the best stories of the year, best, most digestible little parts of the podcast for the year, all in one place. So if you don't mind sharing this with somebody that you think might be interested in it, that helps a lot. We always see a little boost coming into the new year with people that do do that. So that's greatly appreciated. Without any further delay, let's fire away with the highlights from the first half of the year. Let's start with episode 437. This is Bones after the PGA Championship that Phil Mickelson won at the age of 50, which I feel like we should start pretty much every show just by acknowledging the fact that Phil Mickelson won the PGA this past year. I know Phil is not letting us forget it, but it really is truly remarkable. And uh, hearing Bones talk about that, the perspective he has on all that, uh, was a was a really great listen. This is episode 437, Bones. So I'm guessing if I ask you if you're surprised that Phil Mickelson won a major championship at age 50, you'll say that you're not. Is that fair to say? I would say that I, you know, I certainly got part of it wrong. I, I did. I don't know, you know, who I said it to. I certainly said it to some friends. We were talking about it at the golf course today that I thought that Phil would break the record for the oldest person to win a major, uh, but I, but I, I, I assumed it would be the Masters, and 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 he. I couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, you know, certainly guys like Phil and Tiger have, in my opinion, an incredible advantage at Augusta National, not just because they've won it several times, but because they know the breaks on the golf course. They know everything about it. Of course, it's the one major that's played there every single year, and they've got these incredible memories and all this data. 
you know, in, in their brains about what and what not to do there. But for Phil to go to a golf course as penal as that one last week and do what he did, I mean, it, it's 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 incredible. In my opinion, it's one of the greatest feats in the history of the game. I'm not a golf historian. Um, and I'm happy for him for multiple reasons. And certainly one of them is that, you know, having been his caddy for 25 years, you know, you read these articles about, you know, where does Phil Mickelson rank in the greatest golfers of all time? And I remember, you know, these folks saying, well, he's 11 to 15, you know, there's this and that guy and you've got Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus and, and all the other greats. But, but with what Phil did last week and the age that he did it at, um, I think it's, it's not only an amazing accomplishment, but it's also uh, going to make it that much more likely that he's thought of as, you know, potentially down the road, one of the 10 greatest golfers of all time. And, and I can certainly, from my little caddy vantage point, you know, having been there for a while with him, say that, you know, he, he's, he's a mind-blowingly talented guy. And some of those shots that he hit last week, even early on, I saw him hit a shot. I was... Max was on the same side of the draw as him, so I didn't see much, but I was watching the highlights on Thursday, and he hit this flighted six or seven iron into 15, and I was like, wow, at 50 to hit that shot, to get the club set as well as he did, the width on the way down, it was really, really impressive. And, you know, I kind of thought to myself, you know, he sure looks like he's onto something here. And uh, again, you know, you know, we, we saw what Watson did at the Open Championship at age 59. You know, I remember caddying, I think, in 97 rated right the Masters, and Jack Nicholas was in contention at like 57 or 8 years old. There is no question that, that, uh, that Phil and hopefully Tiger can, can win the Masters well into their 50s. And, and my goodness, after what Phil did last week, who knows what he might do here yeah. in, in, in the coming years. Next up, episode 430 with Jordan Spieth talking about uh, his path towards getting his game back, among other things. If I may say, every time I talked to Corey or anyone there at Altus, they were steadfast at all times, never wavering that you were close. To the point where I was finally, like, as a fan of yours, I was kind of like, all right, well, I mean, are they just, you know, spewing this at me just to keep my, keep my confidence up high? But did you feel that kind of confidence from within the team? You know, because, you know, looking back at it now, it's like, wow, they were right. Like, he was on this path, and, and, he, and he's come out of it. But th- internally, did you feel that? Yeah, it's also um, it's also hard when you're, when you're kind of down on yourself sometimes. The, like, it, it's really nice to have people in your corner – that are that have confidence in you and stuff like that but it's also almost easier to be alone at times because you can't figure it out yourself and you're like maybe you and you're like well I don't necessarily know if you know what the problem is so I don't really want to hear it from you right now (laughs) um even though it's all supportive and it's you know I mean it's just it's it's kind of odd and you know from again as I mentioned before the team that that I have around me has I, in in my opinion is is the, are they're the best at what they do in the world and I've it's been proven to me I mean I've seen that I've seen them all in action take um, I've seen Michael in situations where he knew exactly what I needed to hear at the time and it just flipped the switch for me um, on a stretch of holes that made a difference in a tournament you know I've seen Cameron problem solve something that's like wow in the next ten days I went from feeling like, man, I, I didn't have that shot to, I'm going to hit that shot under pressure to win a golf tournament. So it, it, you just, um, my confidence never wavered in the team, 
but sometimes you don't necessarily like you just kind of it was hard. It was almost like just easier to, to try and solve it on my own, even though that's not the answer. You just almost want to dig through it and feel like. Um, and, and so once I started to open up and just rely on some other people and really let them in, it, it was it actually really, really helped turn things around for me. Next up is Hunter Mahan, episode 410. We used a lot of his uh, Ryder Cup-related talk for the Ryder Cup medley podcast we did uh, leading up to the Ryder Cup. There's a lot more in this episode, truly one of my favorite episodes of the year, episode 410 with Hunter Mahan. I don't want to generalize this to say like you were young and dumb because you had you know eight, nine, ten years of sustained success in professional golf, and a ton goes into that, but you got to play for a long period of time without having to doubt anything in your process right you talked about seeing that tree and hitting it right there and then now when you I don't want to say admit that there is a problem but now that you know you have that problem word in there that's what you're trying to overcome more than you are trying to hit it right at that tree I don't know if that how I said that makes sense well yeah you can't be scared to say man I've got you know it's a vulnerability is a good thing you got to tell yourself man I, I I don't get it you know I told I called Sean after pebble and it was even after the first round and i was like you know i shot 67 i was like i don't get it i'm not feeling it or understanding it i need i need help i need you know where i'm missing something and so there was a few years where i was like going to the golf course going i got no idea what's going on like i just don't feel it i don't i don't have a trust i don't quite understand and so that's really hard and that's a very very uncomfortable feeling to go out there and play golf and feel like I'm not really sure what it's going to do today. And I don't know if it's going to miss left or miss right. Uh, that was very much a, a very tough time where I was like, I just don't really want to be out here because there is no hope because I don't really know what the problem is. And so that was hard. And that was um, a, a definitely a struggle. And like I said, it's a slow bleed, you know, like when you see with, you know, it's great to see Jordan Spieth come out of it. But did anyone ever think in Jordan Spieth's twenties that he would struggle to the point where he, you know, he falls out of the top fifty in the world? And it's like that's just asinine to think. The guy's just a he's a grinder and he's a boss at, at what he does. But it's a slow bleed. It's not something that happens quickly, and so it's really hard to see the problem because it would just kind of happen overnight. But it took a while to get there, and that's the challenge of golf is. You could be, you know, it's almost kind of when you look at Tiger's time with Hank, it was really, I mean, it was just Tiger normal. And then all of a sudden it just kind of, it just stopped. And you're like, it just doesn't look the same anymore. Something's off. And then he, you know, grinded away, got with Foley and got it, got it back again quickly. That's, you know, it's a hard, it's really hard to find your DNA and understanding of what do I do? And how do I get better at doing that? That's a hard question to ask because everyone's trying to get better, but it's a fine line between doing that and still keeping your your DNA and what you do and why you can why you are uh, great at it and you can repeat it when you need to. Next up is from episode 425, the 1991 Ryder Cup deep dive that we did uh, this past year with support from BMW. It's a series of interviews from a lot of people that were involved in it about the final putt on that green. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this episode, I spent many, many hours on it. Please go back and listen to it. But uh, there's a bunch of people in this one. The voices are probably pretty clear on uh, the final putt there at the 91 Ryder Cup, episode 425. 
there was now a very real chance that Hale Irwin was going to lose three of the last four holes and the Ryder Cup was going to be retained by Europe. Irwin told a reporter, quote, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't swallow. The sphincter factor was high. Johnny Miller told Golf Digest, there was more pressure put on those two players than ever was exerted on anyone on a golf course ever. Irwin's nerves might have been good enough to win three U.S. Opens, but this was too much, even for him. Longer played well from the fringe, but too hard. The ball rolled six feet past. Irwin came up about 18 inches short, and Longer conceded it. Bogey. Longer was six feet away from retaining the Ryder Cup for Europe. Here's Irwin. By virtue of going down there several days more frequently, several rounds, uh, I had played more than anybody else on the team. I remember being in the team room, and I told them, if you're on 18, for whatever reason, there seems to be more of a back-to-front break than it appears. Whether it's slope, whether it's the grain, whether it's the way the wind comes through, something is making that ball break more to the front than you think. question is, what was I thinking about? I was thinking that I, I hope Bernard doesn't know what I know. Yeah, we went through my routine, uh, you know, looking at the putts from both sides. And my caddy, Peter Coleman, at the time was reading the putts with me. And we both came to the same conclusion that it's a left-edge putt. But it was uh, a unique situation because I had two very crusty spike marks exactly on that line. I mean, it was only a six-foot putt. Uh, so about a, a foot in front of my ball or something, there were these two these spike marks standing up off, you know, above the ground. And they were exactly on my line left edge. So we both saw it. So we both, you know, felt there was a left edge putt with a slope. But we had a quick discussion. Well, if I hit those spike marks, the ball can bounce left. It can bounce right. It can do anything and everything. And it, you have to understand the type of grass. Some spike marks are not as bad as others when you play you know, bent grass, and it's a little moist, soft. The grass is soft, so the ball goes more or less on over it. But when you play Kiowa, and uh, I think it was Bermuda grass, and it was late in the afternoon, about 5 or 6 p.m. or whatever it was, and the grass was, it was windy and sunny. Uh, the grass was really crusty. So I figured that ball, if it hits those bike marks, it had no chance. So we decided to avoid the spike marks by putting it straight. I figured if I aim at the middle of the hole, I would just miss the spike marks, and hopefully the putt would only break slightly so it would still go in on the right half or inside right. Uh, and that's what Peter McCaddy and I decided to do in the end. Remember that I noted earlier that this was only the third match to make it to 18 green all day. Regarding these spike marks, Based on where they putted from and the paths they walked, Kurt Sampson notes that they could well have been from the nails on the soles of the Stylo shoes of Stylo's worldwide spokesman, Nick Faldo. Oh, you could hear a pin drop. It was just an amazing atmosphere. I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like it. I mean, I'm sitting beside the green. I got my head down as he's getting ready to putt this four-foot putt. And I realized that we're, we're probably going to end up tied. I feel bad because I thought we were going to win by a bigger margin, and we would have if we hadn't had the limo wreck, I don't think. Roger Mulby said, I was at the front of the green when Irwin and Longer were putting out. The crowd was enormous and completely encircled the green. I was kneeling next to Faraday. When Longer was over his putt, David announces, this is bullshit. 
We've all dreamed about having putts to win the Open or the Masters, but nobody wants this putt right now. It was as dramatic a moment as I have ever experienced. thought I made actually a good, a good putt, but it did break and went over the right lip and didn't go in. You know, I had to make a decision about the spike marks, what I try and hit him and go over him or, or go to the side of it. I made the best decision at the time I could, and it was maybe the wrong decision. But that's golf. We make, uh, you know, 70 decisions a, a day. I, I didn't watch the putt, and then I heard this roar before I realized that he missed it. Payne jumped up and grabbed me and hugged me and, and just started yelling, we won, we won, we won. Everything after that to me is a complete blur. I don't remember going into the ocean with our blue blazers on, that picture you see all the time. No recollection of that. No recollection of the uh, the dinner that night or the party. Of course, I was probably blasted out of my mind. Well, the immediate uh, effect obviously was, uh, in, in a sense, very disappointing because uh, I, I felt like I you know, played good and I made a good putt and it didn't go in and I felt bad for the team. Uh, they all suffered because I didn't make that putt, basically. And the celebrations were tremendous on the U.S. side, and rightly so, after, you know, being defeated for whatever it was, five or six years or three times in a row, now to have won it back on their own, in their own land is, is a wonderful achievement. But I know there were many, many players reached out to me, and, and Hale Irwin was one of them uh, on the U.S. side, but several others and my whole team said you know nobody nobody should have ever had to face that putt and uh just tremendous pressure and uh, but you know whatever they said at the time i still felt terrible uh, that's just how it is in competition especially that kind of competition where there's a just a winner and a loser there's nothing else up next a couple clips from mav mcneely episode 412 uh just gonna blend a couple highlights from that episode into one clip here Along the lines of, you don't worry too much about your bad golf and that your pro, your pro golf career is going to be defined by getting the most out of your good golf, meaning you don't beat yourself up too much about miscuts. It's mostly just like, hey, how do I get the most out of when I'm playing well? Does that sound right? Maybe you can define that in better terms. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the way professional golf is structured is very exponential. So the difference between 55th and 56th is tiny compared to the difference between first and second and you know the difference between second and tied for second which was what that uh, birdie on 18 got me was i think in the ballpark of 70 points which is a top 10 so it's a game within a game and when you're playing well you have to really optimize and i guess to just take advantage of your opportunities and it makes sense when you're when you have your your uh your good stuff going and you're climbing up that leaderboard it gets more exciting it gets more fun that's what people care about that's what they're watching on tv um the harsh reality is nobody really cares who's in 55th so uh it, it's it's kind of a game within a game you got to play well enough the first 60 holes to give yourself an opportunity to feel those things and feel those nerves and that pressure and then it's another game to figure out how to execute and finish higher up on the leaderboard where you want to. It, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it's just because, you know, we've had this discussion in the past, but I see like so far this season, you've made seven cuts and you're top 25 in five of them. So you're, there's not a lot of those kind of middling around in that 40th place. It seems like when you do make the cut, you have been able to take it inside that top 20, whatever that, whatever that may be. Am I reading too much into that? Or do you see? It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a pattern. You know, if you tee it up on Sunday and you're in 40th place, you pin your ears back because, uh, you know, the, 
like I said, the difference between a 69 and a 70 is not that big compared to the difference between a 64 and a 65. So um, it's also a lot of fun on the PGA Tour that you can move up the leaderboard with a pair of 69s on the weekend. You don't have to shoot 64, 63 like you did on the Corn Ferry Tour, especially if you make the cut on a number. Some places separate more, but it feels like solid golf gets you a lot further out here than it does on the Corn Ferry. And racking up a bunch of 20, 25th place finishes is a quick way to keep your card. Because you can't race past so many of the things that I think I, I, I just I see a confidence in you now that is, comes from a, just a better foundation. Now, does that make is that accurate? Would you say that is accurate? It's it's funny before Pebble, um, I, I didn't play well in Palm Springs, missed the cut at Torrey, which is a place that I love playing at. And uh, going to Pebble, my game felt great. Butch said I was swinging at best he's ever seen. Uh, putting felt pretty good. And uh I was just thinking, man, what else do I have to do? I feel like I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything well right now. Um, I'm not seeing the results. I was a little frustrated, and then I go out there and play great. And I go, huh, I guess I wasn't that far off. Just just be a little more patient with myself and, and don't stress about it. And, uh, you know, it's... But, but I think there is another thing, too. That wasn't the strongest field at Pebble. Now we're playing with pretty much all of the top... 100 players in the world this week at the players and I have noticed that there's another level at those invitational tournaments The greens are faster and firmer the roughs longer the fairways are tighter and the players are better and it's another level and so Now that's my focus this week at the players is do I expect myself to contend? No, am I going to do everything I can obviously but um, I learn I'm, I'm gonna learn a lot about what I need to do to make that next jump and to uh, be really, really good at playing and in these conditions and, and at this level. Cause like I said, there's a tour within the tour and I think I'm getting better. Uh, I've, you know, the opposite field events, I feel like I've played in pretty well. They're closer to a corn ferry setup than they are to the players or uh, an Arnold Palmer invitational mm -hmm. or Riv or something like that. But, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm learning and I'm getting more experience in those conditions. And when I say learning, I mean, it's just a familiarity with shots that you have to hit. Like there's there's tighter lies, you have to spin it off a tighter lie, you have to hit a putt with more break and less speed, you have to kind of shape a driver in to hold the fairway, things like that that, you know, say Puerto Rico or Punta Cana or, or even Tahoe, you don't have to, you just rip it. And uh, there's there's just a little bit more difficult level of difficulty, obviously, in these these events. Up next, a few clips from episode 394 with Mike Wan uh, debriefing his tenure with the LPGA Tour as well as why women's golf is on TV when it is on TV. I'm going to ask you to brag on yourself a little bit with this next one. Uh, you've accomplished a lot in the last 11 years, but what are, what are you most proud of? I, I can read off the, the list I have here if you want, but I'm, I'm curious <laughs> to hear as to what, uh, you know, what, what was most meaningful to you. Yeah, I've said this in so many player meetings. I've said this in a ton of staff meetings, you know. 25, 30 years, and no one's going to sit down and talk about, you know, the Founders Cup or International Crown or, you know, how Mike got purses from X to V or TV deals. And those are nice. And those are those are timely for articles today. But the reality of it is, you know, when people look back at the time, I always talk about the time we held the baton. I, I think this is one big relay race. And somebody put the baton in my hand in late 2009, and I'm going to put it in somebody else's hand in 2021. And people are going to say, like, what happened while they had the baton? And it's only going to matter if it's lasting. You know, purses and events, those are great. I'm proud of them. It was fun. Um, but what I'm most proud of the fact is this game is going to be more female than ever before over the next 30 years. And it doesn't matter if the next commissioner likes that or dislikes that. It's coming. We've built that. 
you know, when I joined, somebody asked me about the future of the game for women. And I thought, well, that's kind of a humorous question. The future of the game is playing. They're just junior golfers. Go look at them. And junior golfers looked exactly the same as senior golfers for 100 years. 15% women, 85% men, mostly white male men. If you jump forward to today, 38% of the future golfers are women. There's only about a third of them are white male men. I mean, this game is going to look and feel different. It's going to look and feel more like uh, the rest of the world. And um, that's what I'm probably most excited about. I, I would say that when you ask that question, the two things that jump to mind is literally changing the face of the future of this game is something this team should take a lot of pride in. And the other is just the relationships. You know, not, nothing really matters at the end except except the people you meet and and work with along the way. And I can I can think I can leave this job 10, 11 years later saying, Almost everybody I worked with, I'd work with again, and I think they'd work with me. And along the way in 11 years, I'm not sure I would have believed I could ever say that when it was over. Because, you know, when you're in the middle of the grind and people are yelling at you and you're yelling at them, you're wondering, gosh, I wonder if I'm messing this thing up. But those people I yelled at and yelled back at me are some of my best friends today and will be no matter what my business card says. So again, it might be a two-part question, you know, with no fans and no pro-ams there for a while, was that ever a thought for this kind of COVID era? And why can't, why, why can't dates like that change? I'm sure there's reasons why, but you, this is the fun of having a commissioner on. I get to play commissioner for a day and you tell me why I'm wrong. The reality of it is you're not wrong, but to really get the right answer, you probably need to commit to this for multiple years, not multiple events. Nobody wants to hear this, but it's just true. A really great Wednesday, I mean a really great Wednesday, when I have five hours of live TV competing with nobody, is so much worse than a really crappy Sunday in terms of TV viewership and fan attendance. It's just a reality. So any kind of ad agency or marketing expert that will look at me and say, hey, Mike, I tried this, and you're right. I got a lot of live windows on Wednesday, and I gave up a Sunday to do it, and I got half the viewers. Now, I I killed it for a Wednesday sport because you're not really competing with much. But a really good Wednesday is still pretty bad. So, um, And here's the other reality, too, is when I'm playing three to six on the Golf Channel, while the, while the, uh, while the PGA Tour is three to six on CBS or NBC, my numbers are huge. The reason they're huge is you're watching golf. You've committed a few hours to it. You probably don't commit a lot of your life to it. But, I mean, you're a bad example. But some of the people that watch golf, they go, hey, I'm going to watch golf right now. And let's face it, we've all got the clicker that makes us go back and forth. I get that back and forth for three hours, and that gives me hundreds of thousands of viewers that I wouldn't normally have when I've tried these Tuesday, Monday, Wednesday things. Where we really had success in some of these kind of off-hour things, to be honest with you, is some of our international viewership. When we, when we finish on a Saturday night in Hawaii, it's Sunday morning in Korea and Japan, and our numbers are through the roof in Korea and Japan because it's breakfast in Wimbledon for them watching us, you know, yeah, but the, um, so you're right. I mean, there's two things that have to happen. One, if I move one or two tournaments, then I got to move eight. When you start talking about moving eight tournaments, you have to bring them a better value, a better idea. They like it conceptually until they do their homework. And then they come back and go, Mike, I wouldn't mind playing these dates, but the price is lower, right? Like you're not going to charge me the same for less viewers, are you? So um, when somebody asks me to lower the price, so I'm usually done talking about that unique concept. So there, the, I will not be the next commissioner of the LPGA tour. Then, based on this idea, is what you're telling me. No, that makes. <laughs> Although sense. I hope the next commissioner on the LPGA is willing to try those things, because I would tell you, in COVID times, we had the best Thursday Friday ratings we've ever had. And if I could have moved more events in COVID to the weekdays, I would have. The problem we had with COVID times is by the time it hit us, we already had these golf courses and these TV contracts locked down for the 2020 time. So moving them in the middle of the year would have been more costly. And the last thing I was doing in 2020 was adding costs. 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of the actual benefit of flipping back between channels more so than, you know, dedicating separate time to it. And I, I always try to, I mean, I think we always end up thinking of things through our lens in terms of golf fans, and it's hard for us to divide our attention between two events when both are going on at the same time. But the numbers don't lie. So yeah. I'll give you another good example. Like when we're in a playoff and the, and the PJ Tour is coming on and our, and our hours overlap or vice versa, they're in a playoff and working with us. And we go to split screen at Golf Channel or we go to split screen on network or they go back and forth. Um, the fans go crazy. They're upset because they either want to see the PGA Tour or they want to see our playoff. And they can't believe that we're sharing time together. Both tours are winning during that time because the demand for, for golf at the same location is actually higher and your viewership actually goes up. So we have to sort of say to the fans, gosh, I know that really stinks. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I hope this playoff lasts another three holes. I hope to keep going back and forth because my viewer, my, my sponsor is winning. And all the sponsors that are sponsoring what's on the player's bodies and bags and everything else are winning during that time. So even though the fan reaction is loud and, un- and unhappy, the reality of it is it's actually working for the tour and for the players. Up next, episode 396 with Tommy Fleetwood, a story about him and Fran at the 2018 Ryder Cup. The amount of takes that we actually tried to do that <laughs> video was like the funniest part because it was, I mean, Gibbo decided that this video, like we were going to do this, like great idea. You know, whatever time, I, I couldn't even put a time on it anymore. I, I don't know, it was 1 a.m., 2 a.m., midnight, whatever it was. And yeah, when we were up in the room and everyone gave us room and he's like, okay, like you guys get in the bed, this is what we're going to do. Fran's like, okay, like, you know, turns around to get in the bed and I just like took everything off. And I'm like, oh. but like as soon as Fran like saw, it was just just a really, really funny time. So we got the giggles at that. And then once we were in, Fran, after he's had like a drink, is so funny, and all it took was like to just look at each other, and we we just couldn't stop laughing, and it it was like it took so long to do, and and then came and then came out really good. But Fran, uh, Fran's very Fran's very very funny when he's had a drink. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Elijah Craig. Still deciding what the holiday cocktail is going to be in this household. You could always, I know I could stick with Old Faithful, which is, of course, the old fashioned. It's what I've always stuck with. I love a bourbon old fashioned, but thinking about switching it up this year, mixing in a little bit Elijah Craig straight rye. It's a little spicier than the small batch bourbon. It's perfect for a Manhattan. I need to up my game a little bit. I need to just not have one go to cocktail that I can make. Side note, I'm actually looking to buying one of those little smoke things where you can like actually smoke the old fashioned. More on that later. I didn't know the difference between bourbon and rye until the folks at Elijah Craig gave me a little lesson on it. Bourbon is made with a minimum of 51% corn in the mash bill. Rye whiskey is made with a minimum of 51% rye. So no matter what what cocktail you decide to serve your guests, you cannot go wrong with Elijah Craig. For recipe ideas, you can go to ElijahCraig.com, discover the greatness within. That's where I get my old-fashioned recipe. I should have it memorized by now, but uh, it's super easy. Just pull up, pull that up on their website and uh, make it fire up an old-fashioned. No Layup is brought to you by Elijah Craig, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Bardstown, Kentucky, 47% alcohol by volume. Elijah Craig reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Next up, a really surprising interview for me, episode 404 with Chip Beck. This was one of my favorites of the year, just very open and honest about all things in his professional golf career. Again, episode 404 with Chip Beck. 46 consecutive cuts missed between 97 and 98. When you knew it was time to walk away from the game, what you did and, and kind of what that was like. Yeah, that that was a real trying time for sure because I was burnt out. I really wasn't playing my best game. I was getting up there in age. But the disciplines that I had developed from working out in the morning, working out at night, 
and staying in really good shape. I created so many great disciplines to carry me that it really, it kept me going and kept me pushing. But as I look back on it, you know, uh, I played the piano and I always thought, you know, the rest in the music is equally as important as the music itself. And I, if I had to do it over again, I would have taken a rest. When I got to where I literally, I couldn't get the ball in play. After I tried to win the gust of hitting that 30-yard hook, I, I spent the next year and a half like in the right rough trying to hit my fade. And, I mean, I was out of the tournament 99% of the time the first nine holes. I'd shoot 39-40 on the first nine holes I was playing. I'm, I'm out of the event. I think I might have had one good top 10 finish where I shoot 30-40 in any round, any nine for any 18 holes. It's just you can't make it up. You've got to be an offensive player when you play the tour. You know, it was costing me $5,000 a, a week to get there. I had six kids or five, actually six children, but five under the four under the age of five. I, I got to where I couldn't play. And I called my friend, Joel Hirsch. I said, Joel, man, I'm, I've got six kids to put through college. I really, I, I don't think I can play golf anymore. I said, I need, I need to make a living. And um, he said, meet me on Monday morning. He introduced me to a guy named John Vitt. For the next six years, I was playing seven events on the on the nationwide tour and where I could play on tour. I was selling insurance and uh, I was getting Monday morning. Every Monday morning, I would have a two hour instructional uh, learning about the insurance business and learning how premium financed insurance, whatever it was. I was taught by this guy. And so I'd bring people in. He went to John Vitt went to every meeting with me and I learned a lot about the business world and you know, without it, I probably wouldn't have had a chance to work with Jim Suddy. When I came home, I worked with him every chance I had for, gosh, 15 years easily. I learned so much from him. Every time I saw him, I was growing and improving. And uh, he actually gave me a chance to play again. Because, you know, the hardest thing in golf is when you get a phobic response to your driver, when you know you're going to miss it before you get there. I went to Rotella and Dick Coop. I learned all the tricks on how to, you know, like I remember Dick Coop saying, Chip, the guys that drive it poorly, they over-aim, they're jamming thoughts, and they're over-aiming. There are three things that they do, and that jamming thoughts is really your mind's too active. you got to keep that level of anxiety down to about a four to five level instead of a ten level. Next up, episode 431, a bit of a different one with Andy Roddick talking about playing with Sergio ahead of the 2017 Masters. Who's the best player you've ever played with? You like you play with tour pros often or kind of any crazy awesome experiences with groups you've had? I play with Sergio a lot because he's he was he's in Austin now. You get Sergio when he's just freewheeling, like relaxed, and I mean he just doesn't he doesn't miss shots. He hits it so good. The way he views a course is just it's so different. Like we'll be at we're playing at Spanish Oaks in Austin. He doesn't know the line. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm trying to explain it. Like, like if we went out, like, you hadn't seen a place. I don't, I don't know what you play off of, but I'm like, oh yeah, you, you kind of lay back here, and you know, I'd be easy shot. There's no trouble. Like I'm saying, like hit it here because there's right. no trouble. There's OB left. I'm like, water it go, right. I'm like, it goes, it goes half fairway. He goes, how, how far is the hole? I'm like I don't know. It's like, you know, 400. What's, well, what's the last? What, what does it do? The last like 70 yards? I'm like, oh, it's like downhill, kind of towards a pin. He goes. Well, I'm just going to hit it there. I'm like, oh yeah, just do that. So, yeah, but, <laughs> it's but, hard to give really good players advice. On so the I'll, I'll tell you this: this is a great, like this. This is good for a podcast. So the week before he won the Masters, we played. We would play tennis every morning, and we'd go out and play golf every afternoon. And we're walking down 
17 at Spanish Oaks. And uh, I said, you know, how do you, how do you feel about, about next week? And he's like, he goes, man, he goes, I've never, like, the golf course stresses me out. Like, I just, there's always a day where it's hard, it's windy, the greens, I miss a chip. Like, the guys who win the Masters grind through and they, they end up at par on days where it's just hard. And he goes, I, I just can't, I've never been able to grind. It was like completely self-aware, by the way, which I, I wish more of the golf world knew about him. Like they see his worst moments and his petulant moments. He would admit to those, but he, he's, he's kind of self-aware, um, you know, when, when no one's watching. Um, and he goes, he goes, but he goes, I've never had more control over my golf ball. He goes, I can move it three yards either way right now. That's like haunting. <laughs> <Never> and, so, <laughs> and so he says it and he goes, I just have to get through that that like tough round he goes I can score there he goes I need to like just save the bad day and so it was like day two I think it was blowing like 30 35 miles an hour something like that and he made 17 pars and I'm going oh my god and I didn't text him I'm like don't say anything yeah this is what he's talking about this is what he this is what he was just saying he got through and he got like some tough up and downs made some you know six footers some tough six footers which obviously has been his Achilles heel over the year the years and uh like it, it was almost foreshadowing. It was crazy, and so I'm like watching on Sunday. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. this is unbelievable. And then he, you know, burned the edge on the one putt to win it. I'm like, oh no, come on, come on, come on, come on. And he did it. And it was like he he knew it was so clear to him what had to happen. And it was so he comes back the next day. I go, how do you like the golf course now? He goes, I've had a difference of opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're gonna be playing there for the rest of your yeah, life now. But he, you- but he said, like, I can I've I have complete control over my golf ball. Hmm. I can move either way, high, low. Whatever I need to right now. What a feeling that must be. Yeah. yeah. Next up from episode 406, Kevin Na talking about the infamous 2012 incident where he couldn't pull the trigger at the Players' Championship. It's amazing to watch a professional at your level kind of mm-hmm. go through that. Had you ever gone through anything? And I'm talking about, for people that aren't familiar, you had trouble pulling the trigger yeah. while in contention at a PGA Tour event. What, what was that like to go through? And what was the cause of that? And how did you get past that? Uh, so it was 2012. Oh, 12, um, okay. Yeah, so I went through... Uh, it actually started in late 2011, but I went through about, I want to say six months to almost a full year to get really out of it, but literally couldn't, couldn't take it back. I, could, I would stand over the ball and could not take it back. And you, you can call it, we don't like to use that word, but yeah. you can call it the yips, right? Um, I don't know how it started. Um, I want to think that it started because I changed my swing so quickly and I changed the balance in my setup. And I think... Because I changed so quickly, my body and my brain hasn't adjusted to it. That's the only excuse I can think of. And it was exacerbated under pressure. In all when I got fatigue or yeah. a, a lot of pressure, it just got worse. And it was actually I was almost afraid to go tee it up in a golf tournament and, and play in front of people. And you know, in my job, you can't play in front of people. You don't have a job. <laughs> um, but looking back now, it made me stronger. It made me a better golfer, and it, learned, it, it taught me a lot of things to appreciate just the simple stuff in golf. Um, but uh, I've had a lot of messages from people, a lot of people coming up to me asking me, you know, I've had the same thing. You know, can you help me? I've seen another professional golfer at the Open Championship. I was playing a practice round, and he had the same thing. I, I was like, oh, my God. He actually WD'd that from that tournament and did not play. But for me, usually guys, when they go through something like that, they fall off the map, they can't make a cut, 
you know, you never see him on TV. I was playing some of my best golf. That's what's crazy to me and about it. Lean, you got in contention. Yes, yeah. I was leading the Players' Championship. So it's crazy that how I, I still played well under that under what was going on, but it, it it was rough. It was rough. It's something that I don't want to ever experience again. Um, I think I am oh, I am definitely over it, but. You know, you just never know. Hopefully it never comes back. Oh, I hope I didn't just put it in your head for this. For this <laughs> <laughs> Next up, a really fun episode we did with John Wood from episode 406. Now a commentator with the Golf Channel, former caddy out on the PGA Tour. One of the more insightful guys that we see on television on a week-to-week basis. This was an action-packed hour of nerd stuff, which you know I love. Again, episode 406 with John Wood. What are they looking at, I guess, uh, when, they, when they're opening up their books? Yeah, it's a great question. It's funny. When I started out here, uh, the books were so basic. What they've gone to now is, is incredible. Mark Long, who used to caddy for Fred Funk, does does most of the books for almost every tournament these days. They're so detailed. That I honestly wouldn't be afraid t- at this point to, to go onto a course without having seen it with Mark's yardage books. I almost think they're too good. You don't have to do the homework that maybe you had to do in, in years past to figure everything out. But what we're looking at a lot of times when these decisions get made are, okay, um, I know how far it is to the pin. Um, that's that's easy. But that a lot of the times is completely irrelevant. I want the players and my caddies want to know um, how far is it up onto the swale right in front of the pin. How far, how much room do I have behind it? You know what exactly is left of this green, and can I get it up and down if I hit it there? Let's say, for example, I've got you know a, a player who hits an eight iron one sixty five, and we've got a, a pin that's you know one sixty two to the pin, maybe one fifty eight up top of of a swale. So an eight iron, you know, a normal eight iron is going to fly a little long, but. Um, if I know we've got eight yards behind this pin, which I've noted in my book, or I can tell him, hey, you've got all the room in the world behind this pin. You can hit this all day and it's never going to go over the green. It gives him that little bit of extra confidence. And I think most of the, I think most of the bad shots on the PGA Tour are because of indecision and not fully committed to the shot. Where if you can give him that last bit of information that he goes, oh, well, I don't have to take much off this eight iron, you know, which, you know, when you're trying to do something special with the shot, take take a little bit off or, or cut it or draw it or something you're not used to. That's when that little seed of doubt can be introduced. But if you tell him there is no way you can hit this eight iron over the green, and even though it's probably going to land, you know, 12 to 15 feet past the hole, that's fine. So it gives them that extra bit of clarity in terms of, of stepping into the shot and, and um you know, if they know they have the right club, if they know they that it can't go anywhere really bad, if they execute, you know, they're so good that they, they go into a shot with no fear whatsoever. Up next is episode 414 with Pernilla Lindbergh. We did an interview with her ahead of the ANA Inspiration this past year, and she made a very simple point here about what uh, how, how male professional golfers can help female professional golfers, and I found this pretty profound. Uh, of you know a way that the, the the men's tours might be able to help the the women's tours at least a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I if I like, I could probably come up with for sure some better better ideas. I've never put that much time into thinking about it, but I know I've said in the past, like I would love for the guys just you know every now and then to just kind of speak up a little bit more on our behalf. You know, I just loved such a simple thing as last week when. Michelle Wee West, I guess I should say now, yeah, um, made her debut back on the LPGA Tour. And I saw Justin Thomas did a social 
media post. I know they're good friends. And, you know, he said how excited he was to see that Michelle was back playing. I was like, you have no idea how much that means for us on the LPGA tour to see that one of the guys tune in and, you know, say something like that. Uh, you know, just little social media posts whenever the guys have kind of mentioned something about us. We need more of that. I mean, that's that should be a pretty simple thing uh, just for because their voices, they, uh, they they carry a lot of weight. So, you know, if they say that they're excited to tune in, uh, that, uh, um, that should, should hopefully uh, make a lot of the, the general fans uh, pay attention as well. And then obviously the other one that I know has been talked about a lot is trying to get some kind of joint event, team event, mixed event, you know, something like that. Uh, and hopefully if something like that took place, a lot of good things could kind of trickle down from that as well. But I would love to hear what your ideas are. Well, mixed events was one of them. And I, I was dreaming a little bigger than, uh, than, uh, than just, you know, having players do social media posts about it. But that's that's know, extremely but that's, interesting. No, that really is. Like that's, that would just be a good start. That's simple. That's extremely simple. You're exactly right. And I think that, I just think golf can work. I know the LPGA Tour and the PGA Tour are separate entities, but they have a relationship. The PGA Tour does some negotiating on their behalf for television deals and, you know, the through the relationship with NBC and Golf Channel, there's, you know, weaving in and out of PGA Tour golf into LPGA Tour golf and there's a lot of overlap there that I we I forget who who said it somewhat recently and I just hadn't really ever thought of it as simply as this, but a women's players championship at TPC Sawgrass would be very, very, very interesting. Golf fans would love to watch TPC Sawgrass for another week. And I just think that would be such a cool, it doesn't have to be a crossover. It can be different weeks, but you know, something along the lines of the, you know, the ANWA being right before the masters, like what if there was either the week before or a week after the players championship, like a women's players championship, that that's, that's an idea that I haven't heard circulated a lot until somewhat recently. And I thought that would be, a great one. Then the obvious one is a women's masters at Augusta national. I mean, exactly. I mean that one we've all heard before, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're saying there's a women's uh, uh, players championship, sign me up. I'll be there. Absolutely. We, I mean, we on the LPJ tour, we're used to working a lot harder than the guys on the PJ tour for everything, you know, for sponsorships, for just the, the tiniest bit of TV window, whatever it is. Uh, so if we can, you know, just get to tag along there for uh, for a little bit. That uh, that would mean a lot to us. I, I, um, I should have looked this up. Did you play the um, the the event in Australia that was the the simultaneous men's and women event? Yes. Yeah. What yeah, was that Vic, like? The Vic, the Vic Open. Yes. It was really cool. It, it was really cool. I I even played it actually. I probably played it three or four times. So even before it was co-sanctioned with the LPGA Tour, it was just co-sanctioned with the latest European Tour, but I still went down and played it as a lead up to the Australian Open. And it's a fun event. It's really cool. Even the practice rounds, you know, we played mixed. I would go out there in a practice round and maybe play with two guys or uh, uh, in in the final groups there on, on Sunday, it's every other group is guys and girls. Um, and it's a cool atmosphere. It's a, it, it works. You need two courses probably to do it. But I mean, the other one where we proved that was a cool concept was the U.S. Women's Open in 2014 at Pinehurst. Yes. I think they for sure did much better than what I thought uh, was going to happen because we went the second week. I was worried, why are we going the second week? Is the course going to be beat up uh, and all those things? But 
same thing like it takes a certain course but the way Pinehurst was playing uh, I mean we could barely see divots from the guys it was fantastic so you know we would and I it was really good for you know our viewing numbers and people tuning in so and I mean something like that again would really help as well Next up is episode 428 with Marcus Armitage. It's just a story that does not sound like a lot of other stories uh, in professional golf. Pretty much that whole podcast uh, fits the bill in this one. But a story about him uh, restarting his pro career. Again, episode 428, Marcus Armitage. Uh, my dad stuck by me the whole time. Absolutely incredible guy, you know. Um, and Anyway, he started taking me to the golf club again, 8 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock till at night. I had no car, nothing, just practice, and I practiced my way out of it. In 2013, I come back out on the mini tours and started burning it up again. And then I went to there's a there's a tour called the Euro Pro Tour in England. So one of the challenges, so it's like um, the three day events, but it's just a bit bigger than the than the little one dayers. And basically, I went and selecting a tent that week that year in the middle of March. It was like like two degrees. Like, so me and my dad selecting this tent, we had no money, proper broke, because my dad had lost his business and everything. We were, we were, I just thought, if I can just get a card, I can then approach some people and say, oh, do you want to send me to, to this tournament for a bit of money? And anyway, my, one of my best mates said, listen, I'll do your deal. I'll send you there, and I want 50% of your winnings. And I'll pay for everything. So I got my card, and he sent me to this tournament halfway through the year. And I was just going to see, and because it was a big step up, I was just going to go and feel and see how, you know, how good are these guys, you know. And I, I went and won the event. And uh, and I was like, okay, this is getting a bit serious now. We, You know, you, you're showing potential. And yeah, and then I went to Challenge Tour, which is obviously the one under the European. And I, and I finished eighth there in the first Challenge Tour event. And it just like, it snowballed a little bit. Um, and then like all golfers at the end of 2013, I've had the best year of my career and I decided to change everything. I thought, right, I'm going to lose five stone in weight. I'm going to come out like, you know, like Hulk Hogan next next year. I'm going to look incredible. <laughs> <laughs> come out like Hulk Hogan, but unfortunately, I hit the golf ball like Hulk Hogan as well. So, I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I had a bit of a bit of a bad season in uh, 2014, but I changed a lot and, and it just took time to get through it. Next up, episode 402 with Justin Suh talking about trying to get into PGA Tour events. Sounds like you played some great golf in Monday qualifiers and it just like <laughs> did not. Sully, did the not, Monday cues have been killing me, man. I know, I know, but like you got to tell us about that. You got to tell us that story of how that's gone. It's, you know, like, oh my gosh, these Monday cues <laughs> are brutal. Like, gosh. Oh man, I've been I've, I've been playing and like as soon as the pandemic was over, I started doing the the Monday cues and you know my first event I think it was the Corn Ferry in Utah. I shot seven under and we did like a six hole playoff and it got dark and I I remember I just you know couldn't even see the green. It got bumpy. Lost on that final hole. I was like, okay, darn it. You know I had a couple in San Antonio where where my caddy actually lives and at Briggs Ranch and I shot eight under the first week and they're both at the same course and for a corn fairy event in uh, san antonio so i shot eight under missed it by one come back the next week at the same course shot seven under and then missed it by one and it's just it's it's been that way for almost every corn fairy or like every monday queue where i'm just like a shot away and it's just brutal man it's i mean 
you're playing against so many guys for one day for three or four spots and you know you just kind of have to get hot um but you i mean, did the thing get that hot it, that's the thing i did get hot but just not hot enough <laughs> i know so it's just you know what the thing is out of all these monday cues like you definitely learn like there's some there's a learning experience that i've i've gathered away from just all these monday cues and it's really just what it takes to show up for one day really playing really like knowing how to just kind of like like that whole thing about turning it on it's like no no you just can't turn it on for one tournament like you have to be playing good golf and good to, like, good rounds like in your practice to you know make it almost effortless when you play these monday cues and just kind of go out there and you know like it's, it's it shouldn't be a surprise to you that you shot you know eight under seven under six under it's just it's something that you develop over the course of your practice and these monday cues you know it's just it just taught me like over one day like you know a tournament thursday friday it's uh it's a cut after friday you just it kind of teaches you you know just to kind of always be on and just you know just grind just get after it (laughs) you just you just kind of have to play Next up, episode 430 with Jordan Spieth. I don't say this lightly. This next part is maybe one of my favorite moments in No Longer podcast history, this this point that he makes here. And uh, sometimes I feel like I'm struggling to understand what I'm watching when I'm watching professional golfers play golf, what they play for, you know, with all the, the money that's being thrown around these days. But Jordan's answer here, this was, uh, this was this is what did it for me. This is one of my favorites. Episode 430 with Jordan Spieth. I sometimes wonder when I'm watching, when things aren't going great, why... You stress yourself out. I know you're. It's competitive is probably <laughs> the answer, but you know, you see what I'm getting at here as to like what yeah. what you why why let yourself be so stressed when you have things so great. Uh, and I'm just wondering what that balance is kind of like for you, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, you know, it's um, it's such a crutch to lean on in such a unhealthy way if you're struggling and you're like, oh, it's fine. I'm I'm not going to have to worry about money, so it's it's no big deal it's such a crutch and it's such an inhibitor to actually getting out of a funk. And I ran into that. I mean, you know, as I think a lot of people do that are in, you know, somewhat similar positions, you run into it a little and then you realize it's just, it's such an ego oriented mindset that's so unhealthy for trying to, um, to find mastery in your sport. And I, and, and I'm using very common golf psychology terms. It's really, it's not difficult for me to play each round as if that's my first tournament ever. I don't find it difficult because the game is, and as you know, it can't be perfected and it's just so much fun when you start to get on the right side of momentum in the sport and you start to contend and compete with the best in the world and we get to play the best golf courses in the world. Not only do we not have to pay, we get paid to play the best golf courses in the world with the best players in the world. And then you start to get some momentum and you're like, wow, I can beat these guys too. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's like a drug. It's so addictive. And I think that's, that's the drive. And I think that, you know, what you can struggle with a little is getting into that, how you spend it and getting kind of, you know, lavish because that's what society says that young people, people with money should do but it's like man if you can still 
it, it's actually easier for me at tournaments um, than it is at home to to kind of feel that that drug that kind of that search for that mastery when you kind of get on the road and you're and and then it's more similar um, to how it used to be. Up next, episode 416 with Marco Mira. This was before the Masters. We There's not too many guys that can tell stories about being at the Champions Dinner, and he is one of them, and we asked him everything we possibly could. Have you ever been asked to power rank some of the best Champions Dinners of all time, some of the best meals you've had there? I've never been asked that question. <laughs> how, would you, can, I, how would you do it? Uh, you know, in respect to the Champions and going to the champions dinner, which I've gone to every one since I've won. My take is I always eat whatever the, the defending champ is, is serving. There's opportunities like if, let's say a defending champions got, I don't know, whatever they have on the menu, there's options off the menu that the players, if they, like they don't prefer to want to eat that for dinner, maybe they're, they're serving, I don't know, something, whatever it could be. Uh, maybe they're serving a fish and, and these whoever's up there doesn't really care for fish. They can order a steak. So it's not like every – most of the time I'd say uh, what I've witnessed is 90% of the guys uh, at that dinner on Tuesday night usually eat whatever the, the defending ch- Masters champion is serving. But there are times where, you know, I've seen guys have something different off the menu. So it can happen. And, you know, all the meals, I thought my meal was, was really good. Like in, when I served it, and after I'd won a 98, I, I had the dinner selection menu for 99 and I hosted that dinner. And at that time I had like a big sushi bowl appetizer out front uh, during the cocktail party, which is literally 30 minutes prior to sitting down and having dinner. And it was just so cool to watch you know, Arnold Palmer and back in the day, you know, Sam Sneed was still alive and they're just chowing down on the, the sashimi up there. I mean, it was, it was so much fun to watch. And then, you know, we sat down for the dinner and Byron Nelson was the head of the table. And I sat up there with uh, him himself and then Hootie Johnson, I'm sorry, Jack Stevens was still chairman then. And so to sit up there uh, at the head of the table and look at, at these legends that are out there. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what am I doing here? Number one. And number two, you know, I mean, Gene Saracen was still alive. Every, every living masters champion that was alive in 1999 came to the dinner in that year that I hosted, which was a tremendous honor for me because that doesn't happen a lot. I mean, Jackie Burke, I, he, he hardly, I mean, he's been to two dinners and all the times I've ever been a member. And now obviously Jackie is quite a bit older, but, he came in 99 and he came one other time over those last 23 years. So to have a, all the past champions there was just an amazing thing for me. Hmm. How, how much say do you actually have when it comes to setting the menu? Like, is it a collaboration or do you just say, you know, here, make this? Or do they come back and say, like, listen, sir, these two things don't go together. But what we can do is this. Take us to what that's like. Because I, I read these menus, especially, you know, coming from somebody like, like Dustin Johnson. I just can't picture him using some of these words. So I'm just wondering kind of what the collaboration is like between the club and, and the, uh, the, the winner in terms of setting what's actually on the menu. Well, I think it's definitely certainly over the last, well, you know, luckily for me, over the last 23 years, it's become more defined. Uh, when I, they called me and asked me and I said, well, I'd like to do this, this and this. And they're like, yep, perfect. We can do that. <laughs> so, but there's been times where like, uh, certainly when Sergio won, it was a little more detailed. And then I think, I don't know who the other player was. It might've been, uh, they kind of brought their chef in to help with the chef at the club. 
It could have been Sergio. I, I'm not sure who, but I just know that most of the time the club, they just want it to be a really fun, casual uh, evening and dinner for the guys. And every time, I mean, it just seems like it, it goes so smoothly. I mean, they're so, as you know, I mean, Augusta National, they, they cross every T and every dot and they don't miss a beat. And so when it comes to you know, sitting down and, and the plates are absolutely perfect and the serving and the whole thing goes by like so like orchestra, like going to a, a great concert. I mean, that's kind of what it's like at that champion's dinner because I don't know, it just they've done so many and they, they don't want to mess up and they're very precise. Yeah, there was, you know, I've only ever heard, you know, some people either poke fun at, you know, when Sandy Lyle served Haggis, which was before your time going to the Champions Dinner. But yeah, thank is... God for that. Thank God for that, Chris. <laughs> Haggis is they good. Wouldn't have, they, you got to have a lot of hot sauce, though. Okay. You got to have lots of hot sauce. Yeah, but it was it was kind of like on my list to ask you was, you know, who whose meal has been a letdown? But I don't think Augusta's going to let you eat something that wasn't, you know, meticulously prepared and, and absolutely delicious. Next up is episode 423 with someone we've gotten to know really well over the past year. That's, of course, Madeline Sagstrom. She's uh, one of our young hitters, a woman we've been proud to sponsor on the LPGA Tour. Was a part of a big video series we did called A Week in the Life this past year. If you haven't seen that on our YouTube channel, please check it out. Also, episode 423, Madeline talking about going public with something that was obviously very difficult for her, why she did it, and uh, her story there. Episode 423, Madeline Sagstrom. You came forward with, you know, a part of your life that was obviously incredibly difficult, and I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, use some of the words you used in the in the LPGA Drive On video, which is also included. Uh, parts of it are included in our uh, Week in the Life video, but you said I'm sitting in a hotel room in Greenwood, South Carolina, and I can't stop crying. It's March 2016, and I'm here to prepare for a Symmetra Tour event later in the season. I want to give myself the best chance to succeed, but I can't keep this inside me anymore. I need to tell someone about the secret that I've kept bottled up inside of me for 16 years. I'm wondering as best as you can, tell us that story. And then well, I'd like to get into as well as why you, you know, what, how telling that story has helped you uh, in recent years. So when I started working with Robert, my only intended focus was this is for golf like I'm going to be so I'm going to become such a better golfer by working with him and blah 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 and I think most of my decisions in life have been like golf 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 everything is about golf and when I really started working with Robert he made me understand that if I like how I am as a person affects my golf and who, who I am and how I view myself and how I view the world is also going to affect how I play. So I kept like, I've had this thing come up before, but I've never said like, this is no point. Why, why, why even waste thought about this? And I've kind of just kept like pushing it down, pushing it down. But us working on me being free, being free in my mind, being free in my golf made me realize I am stuck here. Like I, don't want to open this door and if i open this door i know i have a lot of work to do and th and that that week when we were we were playing a practice round because for it was one of my biggest semester tournaments uh we were there early and and i know okay for me to be the best version of myself to become the best golfer i can be i need to open this door now and i need to start working on myself and that's when I decided to open up to him and talk to him. And it was, I mean, looking at it now, it was the best decision that I've ever made. I wish I would have made it earlier, um, but that's when I was ready for it. And that's when I was ready to face 
really something that has defined me um, or, or more an explanation of how why I have reacted to things that I have, why some of my behaviors are the way they are. It's not everything, but it was a huge part of that develop, like my developmental stage into professional golf and to how I define myself in that world. Sexual abuse is not a, uh, I mean, it's, it's a difficult topic, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's difficult for me to ask you about even. And you're, I guess, the video starts with Beth Ann Nichols saying, Madeline Sagstrom is a brave woman. And that's the word that comes to mind when I think of you deciding to tell this story in such a public way. Why was it important for you to tell it in, in a public way? Was it a bit of therapy for you or was the goal to help people? I'd like to hear kind of why you felt uh, it was time to, to tell the world about this. I think it's a bit of everything. I mean, every time I open my mouth and I, and I talk about it and I and it, just saying the word, word sexual abuse, it's, it is, it just becomes easier and easier. So for me, speaking about it, speaking about my own emotions and, and just my trauma in that sense helps me as a person and dealing with my own stuff. But at the same time, like you said, it's, it's hard to speak about. And I was like, it, I want to make it less hard to speak about it because so many more people than we can even understand are dealing with this. And it's unfortunately like we're never going to end. Like it's like you can't, you're not going to be able to reach the predator, but I can reach the victims and I can reach them and make them understand that you, first of all, you're not alone in this. And also there is light in the tunnel. Like you can go through this and still survive. Like it's, it's not going to determine how you want to live your life. Next up, episode 441 with Mark Kalkovecchia talking about finances out on tour. This was a, a great and candid interview, as you might expect from Calc. Episode 441. In 86, things changing. And if I can highlight it here, you made you made $29,660 in 1984, and that was your highest earning year of anything between 81 and 85. Then you earned 155000 in 86, the first year that you won. Then 522000 in 87. And then you're kind of off and running. So how much how much does life change when you know you've struggled on the road for a very long period of time, and now you're actually making money? Quite a bit. I, I bought my first house <laughs> in uh, Bear Lakes in West Palm Beach in '87. Uh, actually, uh, met my first wife out in Phoenix at the Phoenix Open, where I finished third in '87. Uh, we got married eight months later. Next year, or in '89, won Phoenix again, and then won the LA Open, and then went right down and bought. Uh, a BMW for Cheryl, my first wife, and a Porsche for myself. So, yeah, I went from living with my parents, you know, trying to grind out mini tours in, uh, in a few years to, to having all these luxuries. And, you know, I couldn't always afford them. Uh, but I, I, my motto has always been, uh, if you want something, buy it and worry about paying for it later. <laughs> That's not really a good motto as I've gotten older. That's why I, I can't tell if you're saying this with, you know, with pride or with a little bit of regret of how you've handled this over the years. I kind of, I did okay for myself, but uh, yeah, I'm still living by that by that motto, and I haven't haven't played in a golf tournament in, in eight months, so uh, uh, yeah, I'm not making any money. So how's it work? You know, once you maybe get used to a different lifestyle, and you know, you have some success in a in a period of time, but then you start to you know maybe struggle at a diff at different periods, and you're missing cuts, and you're spending money and traveling and just wondering if you, you know, kind of how you manage that flow, uh, if you experienced any of that in, in points in your career. My entire career, um, I, I've, I've always worried about money. And then next thing you know, you, you win a tournament. And the most money I ever won in the tournament was uh, 950000 I think. 
but then all of a sudden, you know, then you forget about money for a year. And then, you know, you buy another car, you do this or you do that, or you, you don't play very good for a while. And then all of a sudden you're like, man, I need to make some money. Back then our purses were a million dollars. I remember when Las Vegas was the first tournament to be a million dollar purse. And that was, I mean, that was, everybody's like, wow, we've hit the big time. We're playing for a million dollars this week, you know, 180 grand for first. Uh, and now I saw the purse at the Memorial is 9.3 million. You know, every single purse is like at least 8 million, it seems like. So now that now all these young guys, the, the, the young superstars, the Joaquin Neiman's and the Victor Hovland's and uh, I, I guarantee you they're not too worried about cash. Uh, it, it's just they're playing for so much and they're making so much. It's, it's, a, it's a different ball game. Well, and you're of the age where, you know, the arrival of Tiger Woods pretty much dissects your career, not quite right in the middle, but, you know, you played for a long period of time before purses just grew astronomically from, you know, 1996 to 2000. And, you know, guys love to tell stories of how the PGA Tour used to be different. The party atmosphere was maybe a little bit different. Guys would, you know, be in bars till late at night, and, you know, when they had morning tea times and stuff like that. And it is not like that currently on the PGA Tour. Can you can you pinpoint when you started to feel like that kind of environment shift out on tour? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you, you nailed it right on, the, right on the head, right in between 96 and 2000, uh, the Tiger Woods effect. And, you know, we all watched it in amazement. And but the next thing you know, you know, our purses are going up and uh, we're playing for a lot more money. You know, we're playing for five million dollar tournaments and uh, uh, everybody had a pretty big smile on their face, you know, and uh, everybody my age will be the first to tell you it was uh, Tiger Woods was the reason why. Next up, Mark Kalkovecki again, episode 441, talking about coming to terms with the 1991 Ryder Cup. You know, with that whole story arc, you know, constantly getting asked about it. And here I am asking you about it for a second time. Yeah, no, it's I'm fine with it. Uh, I really am. It's uh, I remember it like it was yesterday, and and I watched a lot of the PGA a few weeks ago. And uh, first of all, I thought it was fantastic that Phil won. I think everybody was cheering for him. Uh, that, that was that's quite an accomplishment at, at his age. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I got I got a few shout outs for uh, for my shot on seventeen, and uh, and some grief on Twitter for it. Uh, guys calling him the shank and i said well hold on a minute it wasn't a shank it was a you know i don't know what i said i was a, a smothered de-lofted get way ahead of a choke job of a shot uh I, I just tried to hit it so low i just got so far ahead of it and just smothered it right in the ground basically but uh, yeah it was uh that wasn't good and then you know what a lot of people forget is i still had a two-footer to win the match uh, you know, if it would have been to, earlier in the round to tie a hole, I'm sure Monty would have given it to me. But it's to win the match, and of course I missed it. And then I hit two really good shots on 18, but I I hit a three iron just over the green, and that's that's the worst place you can hit it. I, I should have uh, taken one less and just tried to kind of get anywhere on the green and two putt and get out of there. But uh, anyway, it was uh, yeah, I was I was shaken up about it afterwards. There's no doubt. I went out on the beach and bawled my eyes out and. And you don't, you know, remember earlier in the, in the, in the, our podcast or our talk, I said that, you know, a lot of golfers or almost every golfer on the PJ tour has a, a, a feel or a feeling or a, a, you know, great imagination and stuff. I just, I just knew, or I had a feeling that that half a point that I should have, you know, the whole point I should have won instead of, instead of having the match, it was going to come down to that. And, and sure enough of it did. Uh, when Bernhard had that five footer on the last hole for, for them to win. And, and, uh, 
you know, somehow he missed it. I, I was on my knees out in the fairway with Payne Stewart. He had his arm around me, and I, all of a sudden I heard the crowd erupt. And he jumped up and started hugging me. We won, we won, we won. And then I, I, I basically don't remember a thing after that. Next up, episode 450. This is Stuart Sink telling a Claret Jug story. Tell us about how you, uh, the way you almost returned the Claret Jug to that uh, when you brought it back over. Oh, yeah. Um, great night. We had um, a lake house up in South Carolina for a long time, which we just sold. And um, so my buddy, Chad Parker, who runs East Lake, he's my best friend in town here in um, Atlanta. And he and I grew up in the same town in Alabama. So I've known him since I was literally like six years old. So we were celebrating the last night of all of our togetherness um, before I left to go back to the British that year and return the jug. And Chad and I both were into barbecue a lot. And um, we have a professional cooking team where we compete in barbecue occasionally. And Chad is one of my cookmates. And we got my coach, Mike Lipnick, is the other member of our team. And um, so we're, we're seriously into barbecue. And that night we had uh, kind of done a little barbecue feast for the gathering up there. We had probably about 20 people. We had some, uh, like a drizzle that you would put over pork and we affectionately called it sop mop. It was like a barbecue sauce, but also kind of a marinade, kind of a combination, but very tasty. And uh, we, we put it in the claret jug and we drizzled it over the pork at the table, kind of like a showpiece, right? With the claret jug. And that was kind of the photo moment. And, and then there was some, you know, Guinness and some other uh, adult beverages that were present. And so at the end of the night during the cleanup, I thought Chad had cleaned it out and he thought I had cleaned it out, the, the Claret Jug. And so um, Claret Jug goes back in its case. And it, it, when I had the jug in my possession, it's not like I got it out all the time. It, it stayed in its case for, you know, a week or two at a time without being touched. So it went back in its case and it, we had about... Uh, well, that was on that was the end of the Fourth of July weekend, and we were leaving for the British probably on like July the eighth. So we had three or four days. So I show up at the airport here in Atlanta, and we're going through security, and I know a lot of security people uh, in there. And so when they see me come, and they're like, "Uh huh, you know we're gonna have to check that." We know because they knew it was a claret jug, and they're like, "Uh huh, we gotta check it." So I was laughing with them, and they pulled it out and started looking at it, and. The other officers came over and everybody was kind of crowding around. Yeah, look at the jug. And then meantime, I see the sop mop start to drip out. <laughs> the sop mop is dripping out of the claret jug right there in the airport, right there in security line. And the line is kind of backed up. And I'm like, guys, um, I think we've got people waiting. And it's dripping right on the little felt in the case. And I'm, I've, I'm seeing a disaster starting. So they, they put it back and they close it up. And I went straight into the bathroom. And so I'm in like the, the T gates in Atlanta, right there at the bathroom at the end of security. And I'm washing out the claret jug in the bathroom, in the sink and pouring out the sop mop. I'm sure people back. in the bathroom are like, ah, oh, Stuart, we get it. You won the British open, man. Like we get <laughs> yeah, it. You don't, exactly. need to wa- you don't need to clean it in the airport, but. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, clean it out one last time guys. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, you know, I didn't have anything really to dry it with. So I kind of put it back in the case wet. And I was worried when I got there, overnight flight and all that, that it was going to be like really gross, really moldy and everything. But when I got there, we we went over um, a little bit early to go to Dublin and play golf around Ireland for uh, just a couple of days before we went over to the Open. It was at St. Andrews that year. And and so um, when we got to, the, to Ireland, to the hotel, I, I got out of the case and it was wet and gross, but it wasn't moldy or anything. So I... I stood it up in the corner and let it air dry 
for the rest of the day while we were out playing golf. But the, yeah, that was that was kind of the last little fling I had with it, the Satma. Next up, episode 448 with Stacey Lewis talking about returning from back surgery. Again, one of my favorite uh, favorite interviews of the year. We did this ahead of the KPMG Women's PGA this past year. For people that aren't familiar with your background, how you got into golf, and kind of what you what you went through as, as a as a kid, uh, and the unlikelihood that you would be as successful at pro golf for as long as you have, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I I was diagnosed with scoliosis at age eleven, which is it's just a curvature of your spine. Um, it's a genetic deal more common in girls than boys. It's just, but they don't actually know what causes it. You know, some people have it and they live their life and they're fine. It's just a minor curve. And um, for me, I was very young, had a pretty bad curve. And so they put me in a back brace and it was originally supposed to be for two to three years. Um, It's just hard plastic, had Velcro straps, um, wore it underneath my clothes to school. Um, The only time I took it off was when I played golf or swam or like showering or anything like that. But because I was little and I didn't finish growing till I was almost 18 years old. So I ended up wearing that back brace for six and a half years, um, which is the, my doctor says to this day, it's the longest he's had anybody wear a back brace before, but then back brace comes off. It's supposed to hold your curve from not getting any worse. And so once I stopped wearing it, my curve got pretty bad again, it got significantly worse. And so so right after I graduated high school, I had a rod and five screws put in my back. They fused five vertebrae. And so, I mean, at that point, I mean, just playing golf, I thought, was out of the picture. Yeah, it's it's. I think we can look at, uh, you know, with Tiger having his back fused, look at it mm-hmm. as a magic surgery. Like, oh, yeah, well, why doesn't everyone do that? It works out great. But it's, yeah. it also seems like it's not it's not pleasant necessarily and not a no. uh, not a fail safe that just apply, can be applied in any situation. But no, it's, um, you know, the the hardest part, you know, my doctor said is those muscles in your back, they learn to work a certain way for 18 years. And then all of a sudden you go in there in five hours and basically just move everything around. So. Um, I had to get strength back in my back. Um, you know, fortunately, I was able to still play golf afterwards. I mean, I thought when my doctor said back surgery, I was done, you know. And so for me, it was just to be able to play college golf and to have that experience with my team. I mean, I remember my dad saying like a couple years ago that, you know, he's like, I knew once you played your first college event, I knew everything was going to be okay. Like just being able to play that, that was it, not play on the LPGA, get to number one in the world with majors. I mean, that wasn't even in, in the realm. <laughs> Another clip here from Stacy Lewis, episode 448, just talking about uh, various, various topics around the LPGA tour. You touched on it there, like all the simple stuff. That's why I just keep trying to keep digging into, you know, what is it? And, you know, I talked to Angel Yin about this a couple of years ago, I remember, and she just said almost the exact same things that you said. It's it's incredibly easy, some of these boxes. You would think to tick. I'm sure there's a lot of logistical things that go into it. But, um, yeah, well, so, and a, go ahead. well, you look at like just a great driving range, a great putting green, you know, golf course, you know, they actually close it down a couple of days prior to get it into shape, you know, I mean, these are challenges that that the guys never have to worry about. I mean, we have some weeks where there's a full tee sheet for members on a Sunday before, you know? So, and that's not to like put shame or talk bad about any of our other tournaments, but that's, it's just purely the challenges that we face. Mm-hmm. 
What is this? Is maybe a bit off topic, and I want to get into some of your background here. But you know, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that 2014 was the only year that we saw the men's and women's U.S. Opens go back to back at Pinehurst. As a viewer, that was fantastic. I thought, you know, you know the course as you roll into the next week, and you're excited to watch a totally different playing style the next week. What, what, how did that? How, what was the reaction like on the LPGA tour on the on the women's side for how that worked out for you guys? Well, I obviously played well that week, so I might be a little biased. <laughs> I had a feeling. I was a little leading but, question. <laughs> but it was so cool. I was, I'm honestly surprised the USGA haven't, hasn't done it again because I, I th- for us, I thought it was unbelievable. I mean, we were worried about what kind of shape the golf course would be in after the guys and everything, and it was totally fine. The USGA did an unbelievable job of making us hit the same clubs into holes. So where the guys had all their divots, we were way ahead of that. Um, So you necessarily didn't really have to worry about that. And I thought one of the cool things was, is on, especially on 18, they took a lot of stands down from when the guys played to when we played, just so when we finished there, you know, it looked full, it looked packed. I know we didn't get the same number of people, but it was still packed around that green and it looked great the stands were full but you know maybe if you keep the stands like they were for the guys it wouldn't have it would have looked more empty you know and not have looked as good on tv so they did little things like that but like that week we got the player dining that the guys have you know this big (laughs) massive room and so that's what I mean it's just little stuff it's not like I don't feel like we're asking for a whole lot you know but like we got all the amenities that the guys had we got to see how the golf course played ahead of time, you know, to help us out. So, um, so if I thought I thought it was great. I, I thought it'd be something that the USJ would go back to, to be honest. Next up, Marco Mira again for episode 416, talking about uh, a little putting issue he is having during the Masters that he actually ended up winning. Pretty wild story. To win there, you have to have a little bit of luck. Unless you're Tiger Woods and you dominate the field or you blow people away by how low you go. Other than that, I mean, it's always a fine line, you know, and it certainly comes down to the back nine at Augusta National on Sunday afternoon. And for me, uh, it seemed like I could never get all the stars aligned. In other words, what I mean is I I either go there and I'd hit the ball pretty well and I wouldn't putt well, or I'd putt pretty well and I couldn't hit it as well. So, you know, when you're not as long as some of the other guys, you have to have all those things lined up perfectly uh, to win at Augusta. And what was really strange about 98 was – Going into the event, I wasn't hitting the ball well. I wasn't putting well. My confidence was extremely low. And I guess that 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 in turn lowered all my expectations. I'm 41 years old. Nobody thinks that, you know, Marco Mera is going to win the Masters. Nobody has me on their radar screen, which rightfully so. I, I understand. I felt the same way. And yet on Thursday, I don't know if I've told you the story, Chris, or not, but on Thursday I had about an eight-foot, I'll never forget this as long as I live, on the 10th green for a par. And I was struggling with my putting and I had a little bit of hit in my stroke. And I, I had this 10 footer. It was a left to right, about a a cup left to right break. And I, I kind of yipped it. I missed on the low side, but I could feel a little bit of hit in my right hand. And I shot 74. And I remember coming off the green on 18 and my wife, Tom, Alicia, and my two kids were young. Michelle was 11, Sean was nine and Hank Haney was there. And Hank was obviously teaching me at the time. And and I said, you know, it's either I come to Augusta National, I was obviously a little perturbed, it was windy day, 74, and I said, you know, I either come here and I hit the ball good and I don't putt any good, or I putt good and I don't hit it any good. It just never call comes together. And I said, Hank says, well, I know you didn't putt very well. What's going on? I said, well, I yipped one out there on the 10th green. It's only Thursday, and I'm yipping putts on, at Augusta on Thursday. How the hell are you going to win a tournament 
when you do that? And so he's, let's go to the putting green. So you go to the putting green and he says, look, it looks to me like your head and your eyes are aiming too far right and your putter's aiming too far left. And I'm like, okay, so what is, this is like at seven o'clock at night. I'm like, on Thursday night, I said, what do you want me to do, Hank? And he goes, well, I think you should, you know, try to tilt your head a little more to the left so your eye angle is more left and open the putter face up. And I looked right then and I looked at him and I said, do you realize, Hank, that the, the greens are running 13 and a half out there on the stump meter? I said, are you crazy? How the hell am I going to do that? And he goes, well, I mean, what do you got to lose? I'm like, yeah, you're right. But, and so, you know, of course, I get out there Friday just trying to make the cut. And I got my eye line trying to get it more to left, which felt awkward, opening the putter up. And I didn't really feel like I putted very well. I didn't feel very confident. I shot 70 and I made the cut. And then, boom, here comes the weekend. And, you know, you just never know in this crazy game. And, I, and I've told people this over and over and over again. I honestly didn't have a tremendous amount of confidence on the greens that week. And yet I came down to a putt on the 18th hole or it came down to looking at the stats and I had the fewest amount of putts that week at Augusta National. <laughs> what a dub game. That's just insane. Crazy. Right? I mean, crazy. <laughs> you know, cause I'm watching like the, 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 I watched the whole, you know, replay getting ready for this and when you got on the green, it was just like, oh, well, this one's going in. Well, this one's going in. And to know that internally you didn't have confidence, I just, that, 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 uh, that blows your mind, crazy. doesn't it? I mean, it, it was crazy. There was two putts that I felt pretty confident over where I hit a really good putt on 16, the par three on Sunday. Um, and it didn't go in. And then I, you know, I said those famous words coming off the 16th green to my caddy, Jerry Higginbotham at the time. I said, Jerry, you know, that's as good a putt or good a six iron as I could hit. That's as good a putt as I could hit. Under these circumstances, I said, you know what? Give me a new ball. I'm going to birdie the last two holes. Now, only he heard that. And I don't even know why I said that because i am never come across that confident, to be fair, Chris. And uh, the putt on 17, I felt good over. That was, the, I'd say, of all the putts I hit, the putt behind the hole on the 71st hole was a 12-footer, 10-footer, whatever it was. And I and I, I, I felt good over it. I, I knew I was going to make it. I felt like I was going to make it, and I made it. But I wouldn't say I had that same feeling on the 18th green. Next up, episode 450 again with Stuart Sink, just talking about mental side of golf. You have a career that you've learned a lot of mental stuff, and it sounded like even at that point, you are not necessarily trying new things, but almost having a kind of some enlightenment when it came to the mental side of golf. How would you describe your mental journey in the game of golf and how that has contributed to some late career success? I'd say it started when I... I found myself dreading going to the course when I was probably about two years into my career on the tour. And I won pretty early. I had a really good college career. I got my card almost right away, won in my rookie season. So I had experienced only success as an adult. What I found was that I had just created these expectations in my mind and uh, the, I had sort of imaged what a golfer is supposed to look like say a golfer that's ranked in the top 40 in the world and playing on the world's biggest stage and a PJ tour winner, for instance, I felt like, uh, I was assaulting myself when I would not live up to that. For instance, like a golf ball out of bounds, a three putt, you know, a, a left a ball in the bunker, anything like that, that just happens to everybody. The number one player in the world does this stuff, but I was not forgiving myself for it. And I found myself like, dreading it going to the golf course and uh, what am I going to do if I miss the first, you know, five footer or, or if I hit it OB on number two, I was just not looking forward to playing golf and I didn't know why. 
And so I kind of like, uh, I reverse engineered the process with help, with help. I, I sought out a couple of sports psychologists and that didn't really go very far for me. I went outside of the realm of like the sports psychology world and, and went into more of like, uh, like trying to dig a little deeper and find out who I was as a person and what was going on. And that's what led me to understand what these expectations were doing. And I, when I first heard about this from a guy I used to talk to a long time ago named Preston Waddington down in Florida, I felt like it was just a huge burden lifted off my shoulders. Like, uh, oh my gosh, it's exactly what I've been feeling like. And that explains it. And I, I felt like it was okay when I, I wasn't giving myself the okay before. And so um, that was how I kind of started the journey. And to me, it was two things. It was number one, very effective as far as like a, a, an approach to the game and recognizing these feelings and these thoughts that came. And so I could deal with them a lot better and more effectively. And I played better. Number two, it opened up this real interesting world to me, like, wow, this, you know, how you were raised and the things you experienced as a kid. And the, when your mind was impressionable, your self-esteem, how you feel about yourself in certain situations, all that stuff was really interesting to me and started kind of digging more into it. And so uh, that kind of led me on that journey that is really still going on. I still find that interesting. And um, I'm always trying, I've always been a why person. I want to know why I want to, you know, my coach tells me you need to take your club more outside. I want to know why I'm not just going to do it until I I'm invested. And, and that's, uh, that's been the way I've approached this too. You know, I'm, when I feel a certain way over a putt or a shot, you know, coming down the stretch of the tournament. Why do I feel this way? I want to investigate why and uncover the reason so that I'm familiar with it next time it happens. That's going to do it for part one. Stay tuned for part two, which will be hitting the airwaves shortly. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything 